0: With me in studio, uh, picking their way through today's Sunday papers, Dr. Jennifer Kavanagh, law lecturer in Waterford IT expert in the areas of constitutional law, administrative law and jurisprudence. Jennifer, you're very welcome. <laughs> Thank you. And Michael Nugent, Chairman of Atheist Ireland, amongst many other things. Michael, good morning. Good morning. Um, thanks very much for joining me. Before we get into anything inside the papers, I'll just run through the front pages for, for people who are listening at home haven't had a chance to see them yet. The Sunday Independent leads with water meters to track hose cheats. Government wants Irish water to monitor wasteful use. Metair and drought warning as hot weather to continue. And we're uh, seeking advice from the Spanish Prime Minister to deal with hot weather like an interesting story as well on the front page there Francis Fitzgerald demands 50% female cabinet, uh, this is at a speaking engagement uh, that she was at in Tipperary yesterday, another Tipperary man, this time featured in the front page of the Sunday Business Post, Elaine Byrne writing how Michael Lowry, Lowry was brought to justice uh, their front page story though families of TDs would have to declare interests under revamped ethics laws uh, the front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday, Lowry my deal with Faradkar, exclusive interview, and this is a very interesting interview with John Lee that um, Michael Lowry has done um, about I suppose about everything that's happened with this court case, but as well his deal or pseudo deal, is it really a deal to to, to prop up the government Uh, he talks about it inside the paper actually, I might just read a little quote, he says that he was on his way to Austin DC's funeral and he got a phone call from Leo Varadkar and Leo said, I'm trying to form a minority government, you're an elected representative with a mandate and I'd like you to consider me for the vote and he said, Leo, you're getting my vote And it's unconditional It's unconditional And we need stability And I'm happy To support you He used the word Unconditional twice there And then he says Of course There are issues In my constituency That need attention <laughs> And at least uh, 50 million For a hospital In Clonmel investment uh, So I'm not sure If it meets The Oxford English Dictionary's Definition of unconditional But an interesting interview Nonetheless With Michael Larry In the Mail on Sunday And the Sunday Times Finally leads with Households face fine For lack of waste receipts Rules forcing Irish households To prove they are disposing up their rubbish legally are to be introduced by the end of the year in other words someone like the TV licence inspector is going to knock on your door and ask to see either your contract with a bin company or else receipts for going to the dump uh, there's also a photo on the front page of Mo Coakley who was among thousands of people on the march yesterday in celebration of Dublin Pride no photos in the paper Michael of you, you were at the? Were you at the march yesterday?
1: Yeah it was a Pride it was an excellent march um, huge crowds in fact almost too many because the thing seemed to slow down and everyone was oh, it's stuck, stuck in the Popular. Everyone was stuck in the heat in Stephen's <laughs> Green for, for ages and ages. But um, yeah, it's great to see. There was the the um, the uh, odd Egypt with a homophobic side, but uh, apart from that, it was just a, a very celebratory day. Uh, have you been going to them for many years? I've been going to them for many years. Um, back decades back, campaigning with uh, David Norris for Gay Rights uh, and. Um, once, I remember back in the, the 90s, we had the first picket of the papal nuncio's office here when uh, he expressed an opinion that, that it was okay to discriminate against gay people on certain grounds in employment. And we had a uh, uh, picket outside his, his office down near the Phoenix Park with signs saying equal rights for gays and celibates. <laughs>
0: um, and, and how did that go down at the time? Well, at the time it was quite unusual. It was the
1: first time yeah. that you did have that, um, and and but I think things have moved on so much. I think the population has moved on considerably on all sorts of issues of of human rights, liberalism,
0: secularism. What, what is pride then? Because pride initially, uh, I suppose, was, was uh, it was a demand for for basic rights that didn't exist, that didn't extend to, to, to people who were gay. What is it well, now?
1: Initially, it was worse than that. Initially, it was it was a protest against uh, Declan Flynn being murdered. Actually, yeah, on Park. that,
0: act, Declan Flynn's murder actually is something we look at in Hidden Histories in about an hour and a half time with Donald Fallon. But yeah. aside, so,
1: so, I mean, he was murdered. Um, the, the judge told the court that uh, he couldn't consider it a, a, you know, a murder because they were trying to clean up the area. These guys who, who went out queer bashings, what they used to call it. And uh, they were given a suspended sentence. They had a victory march back to Fairview. After getting out of court and, and that then resulted in a protest march against that that eventually evolved into what is now the Pride Parades.
0: Uh, so, but, but what is it now then?
1: Well, I think in reality there is still a lot to do uh, in Ireland in legislative terms in, in terms of, the, of a kind of liberal, compassionate, human rights-based agenda. I think the population has moved on, but uh, the politicians still to some extent have to catch up. There's, I think, some degree of, of tokenism involved in, in, in some of the the. Uh, the, the political responses. But I think we're getting there. You know, I mean, certainly Ireland today is a, a far better place than it was 20, 30 years ago.
0: Uh, Jennifer, uh, w- one politician, I suppose, who has uh, been making her opinions known very forcefully, I suppose, in, in recent weeks and months is Mary McAleese. Um, and people were kind of caught a, a little by surprise initially with this. You know, she would have always been, you know, very close to the church You she, after she, she left office. She went to Rome to study canon law, I understand, uh, for a while. Uh, she is, though, I suppose, reflecting the views of an awful lot of people of Ireland, isn't she?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, Mary McAleese, her main platform for the presidency was building bridges north and mm. south. But, It's gone into all spheres of life now at this stage, building bridges between the church and the general population. But she's not really an outlier. She's basically giving a voice to most people that would be involved with the church because there was uh, on one of the papers, they had a survey there about perceptions on priests marrying and women priests. And most people are in favour of most people just say, just get on with it. It's modern times. And in a way, she's reflecting what a lot of priests were doing themselves in the 60s and the 70s. And in a way, if they had been more open to change and more open to just gradual of evolving of, of the doctrines, that probably the church wouldn't be in the position that it's in now.
0: But it, uh, is there a point that the church ceases to be the church?
2: Well, I think the church has too much to a kind power a- to begin with you know if you look at it that way i mean they they were running practically everything and the, the state just said look lads get on with it with the result that we've all the scandals that we see coming out now but i mean the the state should have been stepping in and running things itself like a proper democracy mm. from the from the word go and i mean at the end of the day religion is your own moral compass and if you feel like you need to adhere to a certain book of rules be that the the bible or the little book of cam you know it's a private thing Yeah. leave people go with that and if some people feel like they, they're perfectly fine with their own moral code then leave them off because they show atheists tend to have more empathy there tends to be less crime in countries that are predominantly less religious so it all depends on what people feel that they need themselves to get through life
0: Actually we might talk about Uruguay in that context in just a moment apparently yeah. they're the most uh Atheist country in South America, and this ties into that, their football film philosophy and everything. And I know Michael, you're uh, into the World Cup. At well, the I moment. always think
1: football is worse than religion because you can change your religion, but you can't change your football team.
0: Yeah, well, well, uh, Edison Cavani as well, uh, who scored twice for them yesterday, dedicates all his goals to Jesus and everything. So maybe he'll convert them all in in Uruguay uh, back to the church. But unlike
2: Mount Marian, <laughs> you can actually buy in football players, oh, so you're not yes. going to run out of priests. <laughs> <laughs> well, in uh,
1: terms of that survey, you were telling there was another survey. Uh, well, a couple of years ago they, they had the Eucharistic Congress in Ireland, mm. and the, the Catholic Church themselves organized a survey, a proper survey by, by a proper firm, of self-declared Irish Roman Catholics about their beliefs about Catholic values and, and tenets of Catholicism. And it turns out 75 percent of Irish Catholics don't believe in transubstantiation, which is one of the key differences between Catholicism and Protestantism.: all
2: Protestants, then?
1: Exactly yeah. 50 <laughs> uh, percent oh uh, don't believe in hell. Uh, 15% don't believe that Jesus was the son of God. And my personal favourite is that 8% of Irish Catholics don't believe in God, which you would think would be a low hurdle for being a Catholic.
2: <laughs> and then John Paul II did say you can't have a la carte Catholicism. Exactly. So either you believe it all or get
1: out. Well, let's tell you, I think your point is more, more to so the point is Mary McAleese not a real Catholic. Well, essentially, I think your, your point, um, uh, Jennifer, is, is more to the point that most Irish Catholics are effectively Protestants. We're a Protestant country.
0: The, the the idea, this reminds me of just when you were talking about them, it's father like the Father Ted scene where Dougal is, you know, this is like what they told us in the seminary about yeah. heaven and hell and all that. Come on, Ted. You're not really meant to believe any of it. Um, yeah. the, David Quinn, though, is writing in the Sunday Times today um, and he, he makes a point, Michael, that like the church should just accept its minority status instead of, do, don't go with women priests, don't go with ending cel- celibacy and all that. You know, look at countries where they've done it, look at the Scandinavian countries where I mean, the, some of the Lutheran churches have really gone down the progressive road, we'll call it that. And it hasn't, it hasn't led to a swelling of the congregation or anything on a Sunday at all. You should just accept that, you know, the church is now a smaller body with smaller influence in Ireland and stick to your core values. Well, there's a strange in
1: Well, you see, we tend to look at it here, obviously, from an Irish perspective cause yeah. we're in Ireland. But if you look at the church globally, the Catholic Church is growing. It's not shrinking, but it's growing in the developing world. Two thirds of Roman Catholics are now in um, Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Latin America, Southeast Asia. Uh, it's going to be 75% fairly soon of, of Roman Catholics that will be based in that part of the world. And in that part of the world, the Catholic Church is more conservative, more biblical literalist. Certainly more conservative on on sexual issues. Mm. It's slightly more liberal on some social justice issues or more progressive is probably a better word. Um, But but it's also much more superstitious. It's much more believing in demons and possessions. One of the first things that the current Pope did when he became Pope, who's of course from Argentina, was he endorsed an organisation of exorcists in the Vatican. He talks about the devil as a person much more frequently as any recent Pope. So what you essentially have is a Catholic church who is, which is growing, but whose growing market is not in the developed world, it's in the developing world. And and so essentially it's going to have to let go of countries like Ireland and, and, and other uh, more secular countries where just people, as, as from the previous survey we were talking about, people just don't take it seriously anymore.
2: But I mean, on, on that point, if David Quinn is saying that we that the church shouldn't be modernising, does he want to undo Vatican II and go back to the Latin Mass? But one point I would say is about with the uh, the Protestant. I don't know religion. the
0: answer to that question. I haven't asked him, but I wouldn't be amazed if he would well, prefer the Latin Mass. One of my, speak so Latin? Like well, some, well some just do. one
2: point I want to make is one of my good friends and work is actually a Protestant reverend. Now, I wouldn't be very religious at all. And the, the great thing about talking to her, even though if you're not talking about religion, but it just comes up. Because she's a woman, she's, well obviously she's a woman, but she has a life, she's a family, she's children, she has a job outside of religion and everything. They're far more rounded in actually giving advice and giving perspectives. That at the end of the day, say for example, if you're going to do a pre-marriage course and it's a priest that's going to deliver a pre-marriage course, sure he's never been married how would he actually know the the fights over doing the washing up that actually happens in a household because he's not married. The housekeeper does it for him. So there is an element where the church possibly needs to move with the times to a certain extent so they have more of an understanding of what's going on with people in their lives to a certain extent.
0: If the church, if you had women priests and uh, priests who were allowed to marry and they had families and they could give this better advice, is there any young person in Ireland who doesn't go to Mass at the moment would start going though?
2: I'd say they would be more inclined to go and talk to a priest if they had an issue because they would say, well, look, they're out living their lives as well. Now, I think the whole regular mass going of a of a Sunday, <clears throat> I think that's just, just phasing out anyway. But when people are in that time of crisis, they want to talk to someone who has some sort of understanding of what it is to be out there living their life, not somebody who's you know, there in the parochial house, not almost to go to a Father Ted analogy, but just there in the parochial house, surrounded by all the other male priests. And that's the only perspective that they see in life.
0: Uh, you mentioned the Pope there, Michael, uh, which is, of course, visiting here later in the year. And I was speaking to Paddy Agnew in, in Rome last week and he made the point, look, uh, this Pope is very savvy in terms of knowing his audience and where he is and what he's speaking about. He gave the example of of a visit to... South America, where he spoke about you know capitalism being this evil thing and the pursuit of money, and then when he went to the states, it, that disappeared from all his speeches. It was no longer the stump speech, um, and that he'll be very conscious in Ireland of the audience and of what happened here, and he won't kind of go down the fire and brimstone route because he knows that's not what will appeal to people because there will be a lot of those. If there's 500,000 people there or however many they get, they will get a huge crowd, whether it's a sellout or not. Um, There'll be a huge amount of people there who would be that a la carte Catholic, you know, a kind of a fairly casual relationship. He's not going to scare them away. It'll be fairly tame stuff, won't it? Yeah, well, he does very much love thy neighbour.
1: Yeah, he does have good PR in the Global North, although most of his policies are still aimed at the Global South. he manages to get away with a lot of things. The media give him quite an easy ride. There's one famous phrase that he's supposed to have said about gay people, which is who am I to judge? And all the media are phoning over that um, as if it's some sort of progress in terms of the Catholic Church's uh, attitude towards homosexuality. But it isn't. They still think that, be, that the gay orientation is um, objectively and intrinsically disordered. And what he was actually answering in that question was about gay people who had a calling to become priests And he was saying, who am I to judge if they want to become priests? He wasn't saying, who am I to judge them for being gay? Mm. So he manages to get away with a lot in perception terms, without changing any of the actual tenets of the church. It still has the same homophobic teachings. It still has the same sexist teachings. And it and that isn't changing at all under the current Pope. And, beca- and it's because, if I go back to the point I was making earlier, their current market is in the developing world. Yeah. And they don't need to be liberal there. In fact, it's a disadvantage to be liberal there. So w- when they're meeting in the Vatican to decide their strategy for the coming years and so on, they're not thinking... Uh, what what are we going to do for Ireland? They're thinking, how do we grow the church and how they grow it is in the developing world. Do you support the Pope's visit? Do
0: you, do you have a problem with him visiting? I think
1: he's perfectly entitled to come here. I completely support the right to freedom of religion and belief of all religions. Um, I think he's welcome to come here. He's welcome to say whatever masses, to do whatever religious services with with people mm. who, who believe in Catholicism. I don't think that the state should be funding it in any way. I think the state should be treating it as a essentially a, a private person uh, visiting Ireland to, to en- engage with people who, who wants to engage with there's this chameleon-like entity that the Vatican has become where it's a religion when it suits it and it's a state when it suits yeah, it. Yeah, because that was the point I was going to
0: make it. He is a head of state. Well,
1: no, he, well, he he's, he's treated as a head of state. Yeah. But, but, the, but the Vatican or the Holy See, depending on what way they call it, it doesn't have any of the legal attributes that a state is supposed to have. It doesn't have a proper population. It doesn't have a territory. It's just a couple of buildings and a park in the middle of Rome. It doesn't have an economy. You know, it it it, uh, it, it is treated as if it is a state for various historical political reasons. Uh, But but when it suits it when it when it doesn't want to be sued for example for for um, uh, sexual abuse internationally it's you know it suddenly it's a religion rather than a state so so I mean they they tend to like to have it whatever way suits them best. So we shouldn't treat it as a state and we shouldn't
0: treat it as a state visit. No, uh, no. And, and,
1: visit. and I would also suggest, although it's not my call to make, but that, that if the Catholic Church itself is raising money for this visit, it might consider spending some of it on its uh, redress uh, bills for abuse and less of it on uh, pomp and ceremonies for this visit. And Jennifer, you're the legal expert. Is it a state?
2: Technically it is a state. So it's technically
1: treated as a state.
2: Well, I mean, when you look at World War Two, they they didn't go into the Vatican because they recognised the state the state boundaries. It I mean, they have their diplomatic service, which is the Papal Nuncio. And they're all over the all over the world. But I mean there is a very good point to make that there is substantial amounts of money that's still owed under the redress schemes. And I mean, to a certain extent he's coming almost here like a rock star playing one night in Crow Park, playing another night in the the Phoenix Park going down to, to knock for a small gig that I do think it is ridiculous. Frank that Murphy couldn't sure. get him down to
0: Parky Cueve. I
2: know, but I, I do think <laughs> it's ridiculous that, like, if I go to the Vatican holidays, I have to pay my own way. So if he's coming over here, there should be a bit more money coming from their side because, I mean, the Vatican museums, the amount of artworks that they have, the Vatican mm. itself, was built by the priests saying... If you give us money for this you'll get into heaven faster when most of Europe was starving which started Martin Luther off you know I've got 99 problems but I whole to won his 99 thesis on, on the door. So I mean there I I really couldn't care whether he comes or not. You won't it's go and see him. Give, what?
0: You won't go and see him.
2: I have better things to be doing that week to be perfectly honest. Like correct and repeat exam scripts I'll be doing that. So I mean if people want to go go like there's a lot of people who are buying up tickets to try and block people from going it's a bit juvenile. There's a lot of people who would like to go. Yeah,
0: this is the nope to the Pope protest. I mean,
2: you can say no, you can have an alternative gathering in, in I don't know, a different. go to Marty Park and have a, a different thing down there. But I think blocking people who legitimately want to go is a bit ridiculous. Mm. But I, I there is one that, thing yeah. if it's a gathering of the families, but where will the gay families be? Yeah. And that's not that's not right either. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, I was going to ask you about the note to the Pope. Yeah,
1: I, I agree with what Jenner says there. I, I don't think that I, I think it's legitimate to protest against the visit. Yeah. I don't think it's legitimate to stop Catholics who want to go and see yeah. their their religious leader from doing so. You you know, we you can find ways to protest that don't prevent people from exercising their right to freedom of religion or belief. So I think that that's a mistake. I don't. Um, I don't think it'd be noticed either.
0: No, well, no, know, like ironically, if, you, if your point yeah. of protest is to get get noticed, which is the point mm. of any protest, uh, like. I, do you think well? It
1: gets noticed online, you know. I think it's it's largely yeah. an online phenomenon. But 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 ironically enough, I think what it will do is is if there are smaller crowds than expected, it'll give the Catholic Church an excuse. They'll say, well, we could have had more people, but mm. the places were taken up by yes. these no, and all the people you know? are going
2: to travel here from different countries. I mean, yeah. it's, it's good for tourism that they're coming over here anyway. Yeah. so at least leave them get now, get now in that to said, spend I, their money.
1: That's it. I do think that it is legitimate and and uh, appropriate to protest. Uh, you know, against the the harm that this church has caused to our country while he is here, you know, he is leader of an organization that owes our country money uh, for 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 abusing children and women. Uh, they, they they are are still, you know, they're just holding on to that. You know, they're still. Uh, running 90% of our primary schools with a, with a, a, and and discriminating on the ground of religion against teachers and students and parents. They have caused, you know, you un- know the state harm. is complicit in that. It is indeed, yeah. And and, this, and the state that is complicit but it is now paying some of the money towards the visits. So, I mean, that, that's the disentanglement yeah. that, that we need to get. And again, it comes back to that state thing and I just want to clarify one other thing on the state thing. It, the, the position of the, of the state, it is more ambiguous th- than that. They're not accepted as a state in the United Nations. They have a thing called special observer status. Which is less than than state status. Uh, the the World War thing, they had they had a treaty with Mussolini that gave them their uh, their their territory, uh, and and then they engaged in another treaty with um, with the Nazis. You know, so I mean that their their status as, as as a state is not only
0: ambiguous. It's it's there not, not exactly full of state, praise. It's
2: not a your state. Yeah,
0: yeah, there we are. Yeah. Well,
1: uh, that, well, that's what I said. Treat it as a state.
0: The, speaking before we move on, there's plenty of church and mass actually in the papers. I, I just want to touch on one final story. And, it, it, dear Martin, I was really surprised, dear Martin, waved into <coughs> this row during the week. You know, uh, he. You talked about that the, the Pope being kind of. PR savvy. Uh, Diarmuid Martin is fairly PR savvy as well, I would have imagined. Um, he's a time that even people maybe who are disillusioned with the church would still have a certain amount of time for. He comes across very well. He's very well spoken, uh, makes clear arguments. He kind of was fairly quiet in the Repeal of the Eighth debate. And then he'd come out all guns firing, Jennifer, uh, this week over uh, this storm in a teacup and whether Josefa Madigan said mass uh, or hadn't said mass and led a prayer service. I, I well, was as you said, he was quiet
2: during Repeal the Eighth. But remember, Joseph and Madigan was leading that campaign. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not saying there's a link, but it's interesting the personnel that mm-hmm. are involved, if you know what I mean. If anything, I mean, Joseph and Madigan should be thanked. Like, yeah. thanks there for getting us out of a tight spot. But instead, it's turned into this whole, how dare you even say anything against the church? I mean, she, she's a private citizen when she goes to Mass. You know, she's she, she's a minister for her day job. But she, she should be thanked for helping out. And instead, she's getting vilified by, by Dearman Martin. And it's turning into this whole, oh, you're up in the pulpit there saying a few prayers, Asher, and next you'll be saying the whole Mass. And, you know, there, there's been women involved in religion for centuries. If you go back to the very start with the, the catacombs in Rome, Apparently, there's actually pictures of women breaking bread, as in saying mass. So what is this whole problem?
0: Yeah, look, we should say that uh, Archbishop Martin, he has softened his tone somewhat. He has thanked her since. He said it was praiseworthy that she stepped in to lead the service. I think uh, those uh, savvy PR advisors did get to him after the initial statement and said, maybe we should tone that down a little bit. Uh, But I am going with uh, Colin Murphy's piece in the back page of the Business Post, Dinwid Martin's massive Episcopal own goal, which I think is exactly what it was. Plenty of political stories inside the Sunday newspapers as well. Uh, The Sunday Business Post has a piece from Hugh O'Connell on page 3 any Signals' interest in becoming European Commission President, uh, Colin Coyle in the Sunday Times, Senator Mullen to set up a new pro-life party, which is an interesting one. I'm not sure if the appetite is there for a single-issue party yet. Did we not see that with Renua? Uh, the Sunday Independent, page 3, from Philip Ryan. Ex-Union boss and Brendan Howland clash over Labour poll tactics. This is Jack O'Connor and Brendan Howland are apparently uh, now in open warfare for leadership of the party. I know Brendan Howland doesn't have a beard anymore but I still imagine him with that beard from when he was a minister and I just think of these as two beardy lefties fighting for leadership of the, the Labour Party. Uh, a real civil war uh, going on there. Uh, there was a story, uh, Jennifer, I know you wanted to mention that was <coughs> in the papers. It was a story that surprised me. Um, I, I'll get what paper it is in a moment. I don't have it right in front of me. But it was um, IBEC suggesting that uh, forget the rainy day fund that Pascal Donoghue is so keen to pursue in this new uh, prudent world we live in, uh, put the money into third level institutions instead.
2: Yes, I absolutely completely agree with it. And it's not just because I'm a lecturer myself. This one of the best things that we have about this country are the young people that we have. They are like from teaching them myself, they're motivated. They want to do better in life and with Brexit and everything coming up the one thing we need to get stronger at is having access to third level and there's so many different reports after coming out about how do we fund it do we put in a, a state loan scheme do we charge students up front I mean we might as well just give up and say that we do have tuition fees because the capitation fees or the registration fees as they used to be that run into about three grand now for the students to register that what's happening is that the people who are in a certain socioeconomic band, as in that squeezed middle that they Mm. love talking about, they're the people who are just maybe 100 euros, maybe even one euro over getting the grant and they have to make a huge sacrifice to get into college. So if we had that rainy day fund invested into the universities and into the institutes of technology, it would make a big difference on actually funding the sector because with all the uh, rankings now personally, I have a big problem with the rankings because the rankings should be how do the students feel like they are being taught, how are they getting their facilities in the college as opposed to massive research and development because research and development doesn't impact on the first year that's sitting in the lecture hall. Yeah. But we're going down the rankings and that's one way to invest in the future by putting the money into the universities and the institutes of technology.
0: Is there an issue though that this money was being put into a rainy day fund mm. specifically because we couldn't guarantee it as future income that as things like, you know, corporate tax harmonisation they've moved slightly away from and it's now this digital tax policy mm-hmm. that uh, that if that erodes our corporate tax base. At least by putting it into a rainy day fund, you're not leaving anyone shortchanged. That the, yes, the danger you give you this five hundred million now to the universities in ten years' time, you're turning around and say, "Well, actually, most of that money now is going to Germany and France because that's where they're buying all the iPhones." So, you, well, you, you if you don't look have at the anymore. Enterprise
2: Ireland commercialisation fund, say for example, we've had many spin-off companies now from say Waterford Institute of Technology, would have started small. Now they're being bought up by US uh, companies for millions. So it's almost like a business enterprise scheme that the tax used to have years ago. Put it into the universities and the money will come out the other end because if you don't get the spin-off companies, at least you'll get well-qualified graduates coming out who'll be paying more tax.
0: Michael?
1: Yeah, I think the interesting thing about the, the review of the political issues that, that you read out is that is they're so disproportionately focused on personalities rather than policies you know, and power struggles within parties and, and, and issues like that. At the moment, there's a revolution or a potential revolution taking place in Irish politics, which is the, we have a minority government. We have private member bills coming through from opposition parties that address issues that couldn't have been addressed before. Now, the, the government is trying to hold them up at the moment there's about 30 bills being delayed on policy issues the The most current one is one on objective sex education of the Solidarity Party we're trying to bring through and the government is using a uh, procedural motion or a procedural measure on, uh, called a money message to try and stop that from happening so th- there's, a, there's a range of policy issues that I would like to see the, the media focus more on than just the power struggles I think the power struggles I mean, I mean it, the, the one you talked about by the way about the Labour Party I mean it reminds me of there's I was there, being there, a bit facetious yeah, of but, but, but there, there, there is a. Important. There is a funnier uh, uh, story about that from from back in the in the 70s when when Frank Klusky was leader of the Labour Party and he was looking for Michael D. Higgins for a certain vote and couldn't find him. And somebody said, I think he's over in Nicaragua, you know, doing something over there. And. uh, uh, Frank Ruski a us. typical Michael D Higgins when he's given the choice of trying to save the Labour Party or trying to save the world he will always choose
0: the easy option <laughs> <laughs> that is a great line look talking about the world the World Cup I mentioned before the break I did actually want to ask you about this uh, for an atheist this must be like Christmas is it? Like yourself
1: it's the well the World Cup is absolutely brilliant like from childhood uh, I, I remember the first World Cup that I saw was on television was Mexico 1970 and so I supported England during that World Cup Ireland used' to qualify in those days we didn't qualify until we got an Englishman in charge of us and um, so so I so I started following England before I knew that we're supposed to hate England mm. and so so I, I and I still do like I, I love seeing England win I love seeing Scotland win I love seeing Ireland win. I also like seeing Brazil win from that tournament from the Pele years. Yeah. And what I what I love about the World Cup, I was lucky enough in nineteen ninety-eight to be able to go to a World Cup final when France beat uh Brazil 3-0 in yeah. Paris. So that was the home country winning the World Cup in their home city, you know. And the atmosphere it's like nothing on earth. It's just and it's it's such a special tournament because it's the it's really the the one sport that is played around the world in every continent with the same rules,
0: the same passion, and with, unfortunately with a bit of corruption at the top. I was What I was going to ask as a human rights campaigner, like, a, would you have any qualms about following this World Cup as acutely, given it's in Russia, and will you do the same in Qatar? Yeah, well, I mean, it was almost,
1: you know, like the, the first game was Russia against Saudi Arabia. <laughs> it was, it was almost <laughs> like a you know, battle of the human <laughs> rights abusers. Yeah, I mean, I, I I did actually have qualms about that. I I have, I have do have difficulty with that, but, but I... Even on a local level, and I'm not suggesting that that um, uh, Bohemians Football Club have been involved in human rights abuses, but uh, I, I, was in, I was a member of the Bohemians um, Board of Management for a while. And I was removed from the board because I was asking questions about where money that didn't seem to exist was coming from to spend, <laughs> you know, because there, there was, cause there was a, a phase there where League of Ireland clubs started spending money that wasn't there very irresponsibly and almost, you know, put a lot of clubs out. Yeah, of a lot the of clubs got and, into trouble, you yeah. know, yeah. And, and and so I do have that. And I, I sometimes wish that I'd never got involved in that side of it. And I'd just gone and watched the matches and, and, and retained the childhood innocence of just enjoying the game. Jennifer, are you enjoying the World Cup?
2: I'm just waiting for the rugby to come back.
0: Ah, oh, come on. <laughs> the World Cup, though, you have to admit, Declan Lynch wrote a great piece a few weeks ago on the Sunday Independent. I don't know what you go along with it, whereby he said you, you could be completely uh, agnostic about the World Cup, but like it will be relevant in your life. And what he meant was that you won't remember, say, uh, where were you when Mbappe scored those two goals? Who's he to begin with? Yeah, he's a French, (laughs) France's superstar striker who wasn't even born when Michael was at that 1998 World Cup (laughs) final. That's how old we all are. And you won't remember that, but you will remember something like and his example was, I think, you know, you remember someone say, when did those friends of ours get married? And you say, oh, they got married in 2018. Remember everyone was watching that World Cup match during the speech. You know, that it's it's this well, kind of Well, I mean,
2: I, I can easily say that for life. a friend's hen party I know exactly what, when Johnny Sexton scored that <laughs> drop goal in France <laughs> Give me a break. because I was in the taxi to Hotel Kilkenny for the dinner.
0: <laughs> all right. All right. OK. I, well, I, I suppose I know. With
2: anything. me with football I'm just going, lads, pick up the ball and score a try?
0: Well of course everybody (laughs) would remember um,
1: everybody would remember where they were during Saipan you know the the Roy Keane the McCarthy I mean that
0: was our generation's civil war That's Roy
2: Keane That's different that's not even football that's that's Scark
0: Uh, look I suppose the other thing about the World Cup at the moment is that it's a great opportunity to get in and out of the weather if you need a a little break and plenty of coverage of the heatwave in the paper Uh, the front page of the Indo I mentioned water meters to track hose sheets Philip Ryan and Alan O'Keefe writing about that Uh, sun literally melting our heads Brendan O'Connor is a good piece about the changing Irish psyche uh, during uh, heatwaves as well Uh, the Sunday Indo has a great list of how to make the most out of the summer the best uh, chippers best ice creams and all that Um, the highs and lows of our time There's, there's a really important piece though that I think we have to discuss on the Sunday Independent page 15 from Sophie Donaldson. What do we wear to survive a day in the office? Is it ever okay to wear shorts into work, Jennifer? This This is the question that people are really asking themselves.
2: Right. There's a certain type of shorts called city shorts that look like cut off trousers, but they're not cut off. They actually have a fold in them. They're fine.
0: Okay. That's what I would go with. Okay, so like like chinos that just stop at the knee.
2: Yeah, with a with a proper seam on them. It's the it's the raggedy ends that I think is, looks wrong.
0: So cut off jeans, you're not a fan, no?
2: No, I'm not.
0: Nice and short, so you can see the pocket lining hanging out.
2: Absolutely not.
0: God I shouldn't have worn them today um, Michael <laughs> Well Atheist Ireland is a voluntary organisation although
1: some of us have what we would describe as all of the attributes of a full time job apart from the salary but the the, uh, the advantage of that is nobody gets to tell us what to wear so we just wear whatever we want
0: Yeah I cracked on Friday and I wore shorts into the office uh, just on a, I suppose look on a slightly more serious note uh, the water meters to track hose sheets uh, it does it makes sense doesn't it that you'd use them Jennifer
2: Yeah well it's my kind of whole problem is politically fraught though I know an awful lot of people who've gotten letters from Irish Water to say that there's a leak or something like that, right? Yeah. And it turns out, like, I know people in Waterford who have problems with their cisterns but they cannot get a plumber. It would be faster to do the plumbing apprenticeship than actually wait for a plumber to come. So what are they going to do with people like that? Is there going to be some sort of a grace period? Because Are they going to <clears throat> rely on neighbours to ring in and say, oh, your man was using his uh, his pipe there to clean the car? That... Um, I mean, I can totally understand why there needs to be metering, why we need to cut back on water usage. But if you have a leak, it's not like a problem with your electricity. If you've got a problem with a plug, your fuses are going, you're not going to be charged. The meter does not keep ticking over. If you've got a problem with your water and there's a leak and you're trying to get it fixed, it will keep ticking over the whole time. And how are they going to deal with those people who are actually trying to get leaks fixed at the moment?
0: Yeah, I assume though, would they... they, uh... If it's leaking now, it's been leaking before. So, you you know, you could tell from... But
2: you wouldn't know until you get the letter from Irish Water to say that your water usage is well above what you should have. So it's until you get that, you're not really going mm-hmm. to know. So well, I was
1: actually in that position. I, I, when we got the water meters in first, they did contact me and say, there's a ridiculously large amount of water coming through your system. And mm. we discovered that it was a leak. And uh, and uh, uh, and they didn't hassle me for the money. You know, they, they just said, OK, we just sort it out. Yeah, you know, um, which yeah, but if they're the
2: finds now to try and preserve the water supply, yeah, what's that going to
1: do? Well, I don't think they should find people who have leaks, but I mean, I mean, I, I would imagine that that people even people who are most strongly opposed to water charges would see the sense during uh, you know a, a heat wave. That you should have some measures to to preserve mm. the water that is there, yeah. be- because ultimately it's more likely to be the more wealthy people that will be wasting more water than those that that, that might need it.
0: Yeah, it's uh, the as well. You'll always get the parents of uh, small children, which is I fall into that category, who make the point that uh, while it's easy to say about yourself that you can just maybe have a you know quick shower, mm. jump in and out every second day or something, yeah. that's hard to do when you've got kids with sun cream plastered into their hair. They almost have dreadlocks by ice like cream six o'clock themselves. in the evening, yeah. you know. Every Every evening. Yeah. They're absolutely filthy and clothes piling up. Yeah. Just and then the paddling pools certain... come
2: into it as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. The paddling yeah. pools. You yeah, yes. can just
1: sit them in front of the television, watch the World Cup
0: and close the curtains. That's a great yes. But that then they all end suggestion. up with rickets
2: because they have no vitamin D.
0: <laughs> um, there is on, on the front page of the Sunday Times, uh, kind of I suppose, look a slightly related story when we're talking about wasting resources. Um, households face fines for lack of waste receipts. Uh, rules forcing Irish households to prove they're disposing of their rubbish legally are due to be introduced by the end of the year. Uh, this is Esther Shortle writing this piece. Michael, essentially, uh, we'll have versions of the TV license inspector calling around to counter bins. Is it? Well, I don't know how they're going to work that. I mean, the the bins
1: tend to be run by private companies. The private companies seem to change their policies whenever it suits them. I mean, they'll give uh, uh, superficial reasons, but it seems to be more commercial. I I mean, I I think we're kind of living in an age where that's that's the the way things are. Things have to be paid for. Mm. And uh, ultimately, uh, whereas core public services it's appropriate that the that the state pay for them. I think there are, uh, services where if they're used on a different scale, that those who use the most
0: should pay more. Yeah, Jennifer. Like the the reason they're doing this is illegal dumping, and it's yeah. because and and particularly they find this. I think in city centre living, where you've got maybe more transient population as well, people aren't signing up to bin charges. Uh, you know, to 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 to, to a company or anything. Back and
2: in the day when I was in for the summer with Watford City Council, city. Mm. Council, I was uh, in the planning and environment section, so it was bins and planning, the two most controversial sections you can have. And generally what used to happen was somebody would come to someone's door and say, listen, if you've got any rubbish there to get rid of, hand it over to me. I'm bringing it to the dump. Give me the money for the dump. Except the dump was up the cumbers. It wasn't the actual dump at all. And they were taking the money and illegally dumping. And a lot of people were getting caught because, say, they had their name and address on something. And because they were the person that gave the rubbish to a non-authorised collector because they all have permits now, all the waste disposal companies, so they're checked by the councils for where they're licensed. And it was those unlicensed people that were dumping rubbish were causing most of the problems. So I can see what they're up to to make sure the people are disposing of their waste correctly. But if you give your rubbish to a company that has a permit that is legitimate and then the bag is found up the Cumras or up the Wicklow Mountains or wherever you're living Mm. is it really you know if you're the one then who's facing the penalty even though you've done everything you should do properly you know how is that actually fair on the average person
0: Is this an argument then against the name and shame which is what some people are in favour of. I saw a councillor in Kilkenny actually mm. during the week was asking people to vote on a Twitter poll. I guess, you know, it's something he's been advocating for maybe in in, in Kilkenny yeah. that people would be named and shamed.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a an element to naming and shaming that makes people more aware of what they're doing that they don't want to be caught. A lot of the people who are driving up in their own car up to the back of the mountains and throwing out the rubbish, they couldn't care less anyway. And remember at the end of the day some of the people on the name and shame list for, say, revenue may have followed advice that they were given that they thought was legitimate and then their name gets published. Not the person who took the responsibility of getting rid of the rubbish or saying doing the tax. So if it's a case that you give your rubbish to X company... Your
0: dodgy accountant takes your rubbish and dumps yeah, it up exactly. the covers.
2: That person should be as much named as the individual as well. The, the, There's th-
1: another related issue there which is just crossing my mind now that I've never really thought about before. But um, the private bin companies, if, if people overfill their bin so the bin is just overflowing and yeah. mm. they'll just leave it there so you, you'll find the next day certainly on our road you'll, you'll find all the bills are, bins are emptied apart from the ones that are overflowing they're just still there how so overflowing I, I does it have to get for them not well, to pick I, I don't up? know certainly if, if, if the, the lid is at an angle uh, and there's stuff visible at the top of it they seem mm. to just not collect them
0: well, they collect ours I can certainly tell you that yeah, nappies seen. and everything falling at yeah. the top of the bin But the
1: biggest
2: problem is with the bins that they don't close securely if you can't close it. So if you do get a bit of a gale going, someone's bin will fall down inevitably on the road and just wreck the entire road, even though they've put out their bins properly.
0: Uh, Name and shame, Michael. This was, I remember as well, a big issue around uh, Dublin North Central. They started doing it a couple of years ago. They started actually putting up posters of people at certain litter black spots. Yeah. P- they took CCTV and put pictures of them up and there was uproar and they stopped doing it as a result. Yeah, we have a kind of an, an issue. And I'm in live in Drumcondra. So I'm just down the
1: road from Croke Park. Yeah. And uh, some of the
0: events. It was actually Cro- just off Sean McDermott Street yeah. where I remember they put up these posters. Well,
1: well, some of the things around Croke Park events where where you, you get people very drunk coming into the area for and it's typically for sporting events rather than concerts. But not only will they dump things uh, from their vans, you know, cans that they've been drinking on the way down and so on. Um, but they tend to some of them tend to not know the difference between a garden and a toilet. And so, so there's a whole load of issues there that yeah. that did actually get challenged a while ago, where people just photographing people urinating down a laneway and so on, and just putting it up on on the wall and saying this this person, you know, was seen doing this. So, I mean, to some extent, it is. Can have an effect now. Whether whether there's a distinction between you know somebody coming into an area and going out again, and somebody who's actually living yeah. in an area. Wh- whether it would get out of hand when if somebody's living in an area and they get get victimized um, because of something that they've done that's stupid rather than than uh, malevolent.
0: Yeah, I, I like. Uh, it's hard to see how it wouldn't have an effect. Like certainly, you know. When like in people, when they pick up the local paper and such and such was in court for drink driving or something, you know, mm. and it gets mentioned, it, 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 of course, that is that adds to the whole stigma of it and mm. and, and would uh, maybe you think. Didn't it, Michael Lowry? Changing behaviours. Got getting pictured in the paper. (laughs) He seemed to be pleased with it. Oh, he's vindicated. (laughs) Vindicated by the uh, guilty judgment. Uh, Michael Lowry, as you just said, for anyone who is just after tuning in, uh, has given an interview, exclusive interview with John Lee uh, in the Mail on Sunday. An interesting piece, actually. It's over a few pages inside the papers Uh, for anyone who wants to read it. uh, Other stories inside the papers. Plenty of coverage in the papers on housing. Uh, The Sunday Business Post on page five plan to boost growth of urban centres other than Dublin. Michael Brennan has that story and Ronan Lyons has written a piece for the Sunday Independent, Ronan Lyons of DAF.ie and Assistant Professor of Economics as well in Trinity College Dublin because the new Daft report is out today and it shows that the rate of house price increase is slowing down right around the country. It's down to about 5% on average which is still much higher than the rate of inflation in the country but it is much lower than it was say this time last year in terms of housing growth and uh, He's writing a piece, Jennifer, um, below the, the, the kind of the, the, the data driven piece in the paper on page eight uh, about the types of houses we're building and saying that we're building more houses, but not the right ones necessarily.
2: Yeah, I mean, all the houses that I see that are being built are big houses that are not going to be any way affordable for someone who's trying to say, as they say, get on the property ladder because it's either apartments or big houses. There's no <clears throat> average sized, you know, three beds. That seem to be coming onto the market. And if you have people who are in rented accommodation who are trying to save up for a deposit, that has its own problems anyway, but they're never going to be able to get a deposit on one of those big brand new homes that are being built. So if you have a log of people in rented accommodation getting out to buying their own houses, it means the people who are in, say, emergency accommodation or trying to get into, say, social housing or getting the, the council to pay their rent to a certain degree, They're never going to get up through the system and if you want to fix homelessness at one end, it's a whole big cycle and there has to be a proper throughput of housing units coming out for all the different sectors
0: yeah michael i i thought his his piece was interesting uh, he was saying look that the market is getting healthier and uh, private developers are starting to pitch in and getting closer to i suppose the level of house building that, that they should be doing they're still well short of it but you know they 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 are creeping up um those numbers but he makes the point that w- We still do need this cultural change almost in our attitudes to apartment living to happen in Ireland. And despite the huge seismic shift in our property market in the last years, that cultural change doesn't appear to be happening.
1: Yeah, I agree. And um, macroeconomics of building wouldn't be my area of expertise, but uh, I mean, generally, from just an overview of other countries and particularly in, in continental Europe, I mean, we do have a kind of a, an obsession with owning houses that they don't have in other countries. And if, you know, if, if we, the, <coughs> the important issue is that people have a roof over their head, and you know, somewhere. That they that they know is going to be there when they go come home, rather than whether they physically own it or not. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't like to be trying to buy a house in the the market today. I, I don't know how you could. I don't know how you get on the on the market today.
0: Yeah, look that that that. Piece, as I said, is uh, in the Sunday Independent. If anyone wants to read it, it's on uh, page eight, Roman lines, uh, writing about draft report and Michael Brennan, as I said, in the Business Post as well. Plenty of coverage in the papers, as well as I mentioned before the break, about migration and the migration issue, which of course dominated the EU summit during the week. It relegated Brexit to really just a kind of a few minutes on the side. That's all it happened to be. Uh, the Sunday Independent, Dan O'Brien, writing: Europe needs a calm debate, not a reactionary clamour on migration. Paddy Agnew, uh, Salvini, Italy's minister. Of fear and the new fascism. At Fergal Keane, borders are closing and hearts are hardening. And uh, Ben Judah as well in the Sunday Times, migrants mask rights plot to seize Europe. Uh, is this an existential crisis for the European Union, Jennifer, or is this silly season and people need to write columns?
2: It's definitely a huge issue, the migration issue. And I mean, we've a number of boats that were in the Mediterranean that nobody would actually give them harbour. But just before I get on to that, just one point just on the cultural change with the housing. OK, sorry. Yes. We're never going to have that unless you've got proper legislation for people who are renting. Because there's too many people who are in good accommodation, which they can afford. They get a letter from the landlord to say, I'm going to sell the property. You have to leave. Property's never sold. They've rented it out to somebody else, jacked up the rent. We're never going to get that cultural change until that's fixed.
0: Yeah, until you get the five and ten year leases. Exactly. But back
2: to the migration issue. I mean, Europe, Europe has always had immigration coming in. I mean, that's how we've so many different cultures within Europe and everything. And I love the way that the UK is trying to make such a big deal of this as part of their Brexit negotiations because they seem to have completely forgotten that they are they are not in Schengen. Schengen is the reason why you can get on a train in Rome, get the train to Berlin, you never have to show your passport. We are not in that system because the UK is not in that system. And they're, the rule that they have within the Schengen area is that once you present yourself at a European country looking for asylum, you have to be dealt with in that country. Now, that is definitely not working because uh, Spain... Italy, Greece, they cannot actually handle the numbers that are there. They have to go back, reformulate those rules so they can spread them around Europe in a more balanced fashion. And that's some of the problems that Angela Merkel's having at the moment. And her leadership is under threat because she has said, anyone who gets here, we will give you the right to asylum here. But it needs to be split up more so that when you get to your European country or even before you get there, there's plans to open registration centres on the North African coast so you can apply before you start crossing in a boat. And then that would mean that they can split it up a lot more so people can actually handle the numbers that are coming in.
0: Uh, Michael, if Ireland was a Mediterranean country, we would, I think, absolutely be aligned with Italy, would we?
1: Well... I've often thought that for decades, one of the reasons that Ireland wasn't racist is we didn't have any people to be racist to. Um, I I, I think we need to accept immigration. I I think uh, I would I would go so far as to say um, that after separation of church and state. Um, The next big ideologic battle is separation of nation and state, that we shouldn't be identifying states with particular nationalities and that we should have the kind of cultural mixes that they have in, say, the United States of, of America. There isn't really a huge migration problem in Europe at the moment. There's a problem with migrants who did come in up to a couple of years ago. Where there were literally thousands every day coming in, up to about the numbers are down almost ninety percent. yeah, it's down to less than fifty thousand this year. And it, it, you know, you're, so so the the problem is is trying to redistribute those that came in from from a couple of years ago. Now, I think it, it unfortunately it gets entangled with um, arguments about Islam. And uh, and people will say that, that that the problem is that they don't want the Islamification of of Europe. But people are perfectly entitled to hold whatever religious beliefs that they want. And I believe strongly in uh, in the the right of people of any religious or non-religious belief to live in whatever country that they satisfy the the, the citizenship or or immigration requ- requirements for. But I, al- I also believe that. No religious or non-religious belief should be allowed to be used to abuse human rights.
0: Jennifer, a, I suppose on a kind of a technical, a legal note, the the Dublin Protocol or the Dublin Rule, if we call it that, it, it is utterly incompatible with Schengen and with the four freedoms. Isn't that that's part of the problem? Isn't it?
2: To a certain extent, because the 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 main freedom is the freedom, free the free movement of people, and as you're right, the Dublin Convention says that when you get to a country, you register there, you stay there until you get your right to move on. So, I the, the problem is that, yes, there was a huge influx up to about five years ago. It's beginning to start again with all the boats that are coming across. I mean, we, we see it constantly on the newspapers. And what everyone forgets is these people are putting themselves into dangerous positions because of the position that they're in in their home country. And instead of vilifying the people for going over in the boat, we should be looking at the conditions in those countries and maybe Europe can do a lot more to try and sort out some of these problems through their through their aid programmes without saying these people who are coming over are just coming over to steal all our jobs. Uh, what do they call it? Schrodinger's immigrant. They're going to take all our benefits while also stealing our jobs yeah. at the same time.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, we said a couple of years ago, like we said, that we would take in 4,000 migrants by last year and we've taken less than half of that amount. You know, we're, we're, mm.
0: we're not... Re- and then e- when
2: we do take them, we throw them into direct provision.
1: Yeah. Which isn't any good either.
0: The, the 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 issue as well um michael of, of 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 the dublin the dublin convention sorry as as jennifer correctly called it that that people kind of stay in, the, in their home country it, It's hard to see a situation whereby that isn't abolished to some degree and that there isn't just a spread of people once they go through a reception center, whether that's in northern Libya or southern Italy, that they don't then stay in southern Italy. You know what I mean? That it's it's it. I suppose people I don't want to say people are rationed out. It makes them sound like a commodity or something, but essentially they're spread out on a pro rata basis, pro rata basis. Now, that means more people coming to Ireland. Uh, than currently are certainly more than the the four thousand target where we have about twelve hundred of
1: well I mean, I would take a more liberal view of that I think ultimately people should be allowed to move to whatever part of the European Union that they want to uh, rather than be distributed according to some master plan as as, as where it should go in in terms of where they do go, i mean that most of the resistance seems to be coming from eastern European countries who don't who don't want to take migrants um but, but, it, but, yeah, I mean, it will inevitably have to be some form of distribution, just, just to be, because it just makes sense rather than for any ideological reason.
0: Uh, I, I'm conscious that uh, we have uh, a very little time left. Uh, so I'm just asking you on a quick question on Brexit. How hopeful are you on a scale of one to ten that Theresa May is going to produce a white paper after this meeting in Chequers, Jennifer, uh, next Friday? And uh, there will be an open border with the north and everything will be hunky dory.
2: About five. There's a willingness there to do it, whether she actually gets it it through. Well, basically just a a pass. OK. I I think it's going to be a long struggle to get it there, even if she lasts herself. But there's so much pressure now from Europe to actually get a deal done, not just with the north, but also with Gibraltar, which is in the same situation as well. And I was up in Northern Ireland last week and the people up there don't want the border either.
1: Yeah, I'd say you just roll a dice to the side because the uh, English government seems to be just making it up as they go along. I mean, they they just got themselves into a situation for internal Conservative Party politics that they can't get themselves out of.
0: Well, I don't know if that's an intentional slip, but I think English government says it all exactly because that's what they are. <laughs> government for England is how they're acting. Uh, Dr Jennifer Kavanagh, law lecturer in Waterford IT, author of a new book, Constitutional Law in Ireland. Yes, Michael Nugent, Chairman of Atheist Ireland, amongst many other things as well. Thank you both very much for coming in to me today in studio.